going to talk to you just for a minute or so this evening because I have some very sad news for all of you and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country and greater polarization black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, I, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. 
What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. So I ask you tonight to return home, to say a prayer for the family, Martin Luther King, yeah, it's true, but more importantly, to say a prayer for our own country, which all of us love, a prayer for understanding and that compassion that of which I spoke. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to improve the quality of our life and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. And what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. We've got to revolt in such a way that after revolt is over, we can live with people as our brothers and our sisters. Our aim must never be to defeat them or humiliate them. On the night of the state ball, standing up talking with some people, Mordecai Johnson called my attention to the fact that Prime Minister Kwame Krumah and Krumah were there dancing with the Duchess of Kent. I said, isn't this something? Here it is a once serf, the once slave, now dancing with the Lord on an equal plane. That is done because that is no bitterness. These two nations will be able to live together and work together because the breaking of loose was through nonviolence and not through violence. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is bitterness. And this is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the gold of justice and freedom. But let's be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled in Montgomery, that we will be able to live with people as our brothers and sisters. Oh, my friend, I aim must be not to defeat Mr. Englehart, not to defeat Mr. Sellers and Mr. Gale and Mr. Parks. I aim must be to defeat the evil that's in them, but I must be to win the friendship of Mr. Gale and Mr. Sellers 
and Mr. Engelhardt, we must come to the point of seeing that our ultimate aim is to live with all men as brothers and sisters under God and not be their enemies or anything that goes with that type of relationship. And this is one thing that Ghana teaches us, that you can break a loose from evil through nonviolence, through a lack of bitterness. And Krumah says in his book, when I came out of prison, I was not bitter toward Britain. I came out merely with a determination to free my people from the colonialism and imperialism that had been inflicted upon them by Britain. But I came out with no bitterness. Because of that, this world will be a better place in which to live. There's another thing that Ghana reminds us. I'm coming to the conclusion now. Ghana reminds us that freedom never comes on a silver platter. It's never easy. Ghana reminds us that whenever you break out of Egypt, you better get ready for stiff battle. You better get ready for some homes to be bombed. You better get ready for some churches to be bombed. You better get ready for a lot of nasty things to be said about you because you're getting out of Egypt, and whenever you break a loose from Egypt, the initial response of the Egyptian is bitterness. It never comes with ease. It comes only through the hardness and persistence of life. Ghana reminds us of that. You better get ready to go to prison. When I looked out and saw the prime minister there with his prison cap on that night, that reminded me of that fact. That freedom never comes easy. It comes through hard labor and it comes through toil. It comes through hours of despair and disappointment. That's the way it goes. I conceive of this struggle not as a struggle to free 20 million Negroes in the United States, but a struggle to free 180 million citizens of this country. And I don't think anybody in this country can be truly free until the Negro is free. And I certainly don't think the white man is free as long as you have segregation and discrimination because uh, the festering sore of segregation debilitates a white man as well as a Negro. And this is why I say that our aim in this struggle is not to defeat or to humiliate the white man, but to win his friendship and understanding. And the end is reconciliation and the creation of the beloved community. We are not seeking to annihilate the opponent, but to convert him. And this is why we follow nonviolence. Uh, I think uh, the end of violence is to get rid of, uh, to annihilate the opponent. But in the nonviolent movement, the end is to convert the opponent and to bring about a society where all men will live together as brothers and every man will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. I don't mean you would have brotherhood by federal force. I don't think you can really have uh, true brotherhood by federal force. I do think, though, that you can break down the legal and the external 
and the man-made barriers that make brotherhood impossible by federal force. In other words, I don't think you can have brotherhood as long as there is a system of racial segregation. Now, I do feel that this system can be broken down by federal force. Now, when you move to the realm of true brotherhood, a true integration, which is genuine intergroup, interpersonal living, mutual acceptance, then we move into another realm altogether. And I don't think this can be done by federal force, but I think that these barriers can be broken down and it can bring us nearer to the goal. I would like to see it under the 14th Amendment, which says that no state uh, has a right uh, to deny an individual equal protection of the law. And every state has a responsibility, it has the authority to give these businesses licenses to operate. And the fact that this is done by the state means that these businesses at that moment forfeit the right to deal with uh, individuals uh, any way they please. They must be under the scrutiny and under the direction of federal authority on the basis of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Well, an extension of that then would mean that all of us who are licensed to drive automobiles would come within state scrutiny for whatever purpose they wish to do. The state's hand extends everywhere, you see. Oh, yes, it, it, it extends everywhere where basic human constitutional rights are involved. And I am absolutely convinced that there's something wrong with a nation that would put property rights over human rights. And I think states should have rights, but no state should have the right to do wrong. And this is why we have a 14th Amendment, to regulate uh, these wrongs that are often committed. Let us always realize that we don't have to hate as we try to straighten this situation out. Let us always realize that we don't have to become bitter as we try to straighten this situation out. Oh, my friends, if that is any one thing that I would like for you to remember this evening, it is the fact that somebody must have some sense in this world. Somebody must have sense enough to meet hate with love. Somebody must have sense enough to meet physical force with soul force. And if we will but try this way, we will be able to change these conditions and yet at the same time win the hearts and souls of those who have kept these conditions alive. And I know the temptation. I know the temptation which comes to all of us. We've been trampled over so long. I know the temptation that comes to all of us. We've seen the viciousness of lynching mob with our own eyes. We've seen police brutality in our own lives. We are still the last hired in the first five. So many doors are closed in our faces. And that is the temptation for us to end up with bitterness. And I understand these people who have ended up in despair. I understand why there are some who have been a little misguided and they've ended up feeling that the problem can't be solved within, and so they talk about racial separation rather than racial integration. I understand their, their response. I have analyzed it psychologically, and I understand it.
But in spite of the fact that I understand it, I must say to them in patient terms that that isn't the way. I must say to them in patient terms that black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. And God is not interested merely. God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. But God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race and the creation of a society where all men will live together as brothers. No, we need not hate. We need not use violence. That is another way. A way as old as the insights of Jesus of Nazareth. As modern as the techniques of Mohandas K. Gandhi. That is another way. Where is old as Jesus saying, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use them. And as modern as Gandhi saying, through Thoreau, non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as his cooperation with good. That is another way. Where is old as Jesus saying, turn the other cheek. And when he said that, he realized that turning the other cheek might bring suffering sometimes. He realized that it may get you home bomb sometimes. He realized that it may get you stabbed sometimes. He realized that it may get you scarred up sometimes. But he was saying in substance that it is better to go through life with a scarred up body than a scarred up soul. That is another way. This is what we've got to see. There are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they're worth dying for. And if a man happens to be 36 years old as I happen to be, and some great truth stands before the door of his life, some great opportunity to stand up for that which is right. He's afraid his home will get bombed, or he's afraid that he will lose his job, or he's afraid that he will get shot or beat down by state troopers. He may go on and live until he's 80, but he's just as dead as 36 as he would be at 80, and the cessation of breathing in his life is merely the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. He died. when he refuses to stand up for that which is right. A man dies when he refuses to stand up for justice. A man dies when he refuses to take a stand for that which is true. So we're going to stand up right here amid horses. We're going to stand up right here in Alabama amid the billy clubs. We're going to stand up right here in Alabama amid police dogs if they have them. We're going to stand up amid tear gas. We're going to stand up amid anything that they can muster up, letting the world know that we are determined to be free. Welcome to my podcast. Hey, you're listening to The Joyful Podcast. This is a raw journal of the mindful revolution. My name's Ethan Sherritt. If you didn't get that already, um, yeah, this one's not going to have an intro. Um, I had some selected speeches uh, from Martin Luther King, and obviously it started with 
the one from his death, um, the very very same day, I believe, it was uh, Robert Kennedy who made that eulogy and had to have something together to tell everybody at that point in time and address it that MLK was was shot. And the reason I put that one first is because um, I'm recording this on January 15th, Martin Luther King's birthday. Uh, however, when we think of MLK, we think of um, the time after him. He was assassinated. Assassinated, man. And when someone is, uh, is assassinated like that, It makes you just hold a magnifying glass to what they they really meant and what they did. Not that we need a magnifying glass because at that time, that man, that stretch of, uh, I guess it was from 56 or 57 when he started really gathering a lot of meetings, maybe 56 meetings by the time of... um, 1961, 1962, he had an absolute movement unified with some of those. I selected uh, some of those speeches to really highlight the philosophy that he had that was unique that, that I think created that solidarity behind his specific philosophy. He, he had a specific philosophy now. And to give you a little background in case you forgot or in case you didn't know, um, let's see, he got a bachelor's degree from Morehouse College, uh, another theological degree from Crozer Theological Seminary, and then his doctorate in, in uh, philosophy from Boston University. Um, and he became a preacher at a couple different, uh, like I believe two different churches, one in Atlanta and one in Montgomery, Alabama. By 1959, 1960, 1961, his philosophy was so identified as compared with everything else he chose like mathematically the best one to win for people and that's why the the selected speeches that I that I chose to kind of string together some of them really hammered home that like that was not just uh you know what I'm uh it definitely was not a let's be afraid of being whipped so let's use nonviolence. Let's be afraid of a battle. Um, it was, this battle's gonna hurt, but this is a freaking battle. And you guys can be proud of this. And 
and this is a doctorate of philosophy now who studied a lot of ways that the, I guess the biggest way of, of the time. I, I love it. Uh, clip number uh, two that I chose, um, he, he talks about Gandhi. He, he says it with a different accent, Ghana, Ghana. But he talks about Gandhi and he talks about Gandhi so reverently uh, just because he lays out how violence against nonviolence, what's going to happen in the end. One's about annihilation and one is about amending. And how, I mean, I don't need to say anything. Just dwell on that for a minute. The mathematical superiority he laid down of how to overcome how to overcome what they were up against with civil rights in, in this country and with division in this country. And let's, we can apply that to division. I really want to apply that to, there, there's no lack of uh, civil rights laws anymore thanks to what MLK did, thanks to his leadership. We don't need the federal government to make, I don't believe, any more laws because he brought it the right way. He, he said in one of those speeches, actually, I don't think the one that uh, he, he mentioned um, specifically at, at the moment in time, I believe it was in 1961, he was giving a speech. He's like, all right, that's 285 cities now that have integrated their, their lunchrooms at, at their schools. Uh, these are city laws, um, but he was pressing for a federal law that would say, hey, if you want a license to do business, um, you're gonna have to honor the 14th Amendment which freed everyone and made everybody equal who, who's alive in this country. Oh man, that was one of the good clips. Um, let me go through them a little bit. So the first one was the eulogy from Robert F. Kennedy. And the one thing I took from that was the immediacy of the address, the spontaneity, um, you could hear the reaction, like in this day and age, it's hard to like make an announcement that people hadn't heard of. You know, you, you get it, you'd get things intimately and, and there's not a crowd reaction of learning something together. Um, but you felt that. And I'm sure a lot of people already did know, but there were a few people that he announced that to that it hit them to the core and and you can feel that moment in like in time where the people were a little bit lost and so that's why that clip strikes me is um 
what could he get together? How could how could uh, R RFK, who I don't know that much about, but um, wow, he he mentioned that I sure have something in common with with um, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King's family, his own brother was shot, and he he added that yeah, that was a white guy too. Um, that's definitely food for thought. That. Uh, that he mentioned that. And then just how he, he closed it on a, a poem by, uh, it, I guess, a Aeschylus, was it? But that our goal, the, one of the highest goals, the pursuit of man in which, in, in the USA, we should get closer to this than, than any nation ever has a unified mission to, as that poem said, to tame the, savage, the savageness of man and to make gentle the life of this world. It's, uh, it's a noble spiritual pursuit that kind of transcends uh, secularism, religious belief, inner salvation to learn how to be a higher being than just an animal. And we have that ability and it takes work and discipline and togetherness and I mean, I think in our hearts we know that that's the freaking goal of this whole wacky experiment is uh, to see if we're really animals or not, or to see if uh, we can have some sense and, uh, and unify, like some of the, the, the leaders we've had have pointed out, whether it's Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Jesus of Nazareth or uh, who else? Throw in who else you want in there. Uh, philosophers that... Uh, I don't know, philosopher could mean a theorist of some kind, but I think through the clips that I've shown, Martin Luther King was far from a theorist. He, he mentioned he was there on the front lines leading on location. The specifics, the specifics is why I chose one of these clips. Um, number... Five. All right, we'll get to number five. Remember, make a, a bookmark of that number five. Uh, that number one was the eulogy from Robert F. Kennedy, and wow, powerful stuff, important stuff. Number two, this is a long speech of uh, Martin Luther King. This is called uh, "The Birth of a New Nation." Um, it, there, it was segmented on this album. This one was called Part Seven in which he, um, he mentioned that, this is when he talked about Gandhi and his understanding that Gandhi had, had the way. It, I loved how Martin said that there are old ways, as old as Jesus of Nazareth's insights. Um, it, it's a personal, I love it how he said the insights of Jesus, 
of Nazareth. And when he says it that way, you can appreciate the genius of the insights and the ideas and the philosophy and the theory, rather than when somebody says, as Jesus Christ, the Lord, my Savior, instructs us to behave in the following way. That's a weird, dogmatic, religious way. He said the insights of this amazing philosopher, genius, Jesus of Nazareth, turn the other cheek. Um, love thy enemy. These are mathematic ways that he showed our, our superior to lead to a better outcome, to convert your oppressor, to convert your opponent in events of this magnitude. So he, he said that, and then he said the modern ways, modern contemporary theories from like Mahatma Gandhi. And Gandhi was, um, he was practiced in the, the, the inner, works, inner workings of Buddhism, which Martin Luther King didn't say this, but are actually the contemporary practice that Gandhi was doing was applicable specifically to India being ruled by the British and what his people of color were going through at that time. However, the inner workings that Gandhi was familiar with from Buddhism, remember, make no mistake, those, they're contemporary, but they're not modern. They're not new, they're not of a certain age, they're ancient, like 4,000 years plus uh, in an individual level. Anyway, that was the second clip, The Birth of a New Nation, part seven, and I love that, and how he said that, um, freedom never comes easily and I'd like to distinguish between like how that could be heard nowadays. Uh, yeah, freedom doesn't come easy. That means we gotta like have a grenade launcher and uh, and guided missiles and and storm under the cover of darkness and risk our lives to go and in, like into a hostile area and kill the hell out of a bunch of bad guys. That's freedom not coming easy either. That's freedom on the front lines. But freedom not coming easy, as Martin Luther King was talking about, was you are going to be cursed, punched. Your friends, family, yourself might get their leg ripped off in a bomb in a church. Um, you're going to be spit on by people who just can't get used to this new new age. That's what he was talking about. So when he said the fight in that clip, the battle, and hanging in there, it wasn't like it through aggression. It was through those, those Gandhi, those Jesus uh, teachings, um, the Jesus teaching of turning that other cheek regardless of what happens. And that's, that's, that's some big balls. All right, third clip. This was called uh, Brotherhood, and let's see. 
Oh, this one was interesting. Um, this one was when he said uh, he he was kind of like mellowed talking to an interviewer. And in that day and age, the way that this guy was grilling him, you could put that guy as the modern day like um, Fox News counterpoint to your movement like the slippery slope of what you're talking about, Martin Luther King, is that now, so you're saying that by wanting this federal uh, protection for people to buy uh, goods, to eat at any restaurant, you're saying that the federal government should thereby be able to tell every single person what to do with their business and have its hand in everything. The guy, I think it was something like the the state's hand extends everywhere then. And Martin Luther King kept his, absolutely kept his cool. He wasn't trying to keep his cool. He was just cool because he was authentic. He was speaking so much from the heart. And he said, yes, the, the state's hand extends to where there are basic human rights. And he, he made that distinction, like, we can get into um, other aspects of business or uh, where the state's hand ends later, but what I'm talking about is basic human rights. And he said, there is a problem, sir, basically, he said, if the state puts property rights in front of human rights. And I'm not sure if that interview extended and, and they kept on talking about it. The clip that I found, it really seemed to be like, you, you can't argue with that. Um, we have a, a fluid moving type of uh, law in this country that's, that's ideally evolving towards the best thing possible and uh, therefore usually is the best thing possible. Although. In these times, uh, <clears throat> this is a big step forward that made it way closer to the best thing possible. Man, he shut that guy up by saying, man, I, I don't even like saying shut that guy up. He reminded that guy of the love that was in his heart for this. He said, there's something seriously wrong if we put property rights in front of human rights. The other thing you're talking about and the slippery slope of the long arm of the law if a precedent is established here with this amendment you're talking about, MLK, he said, we can regulate that. We can regulate that regulation later. What I'm talking about is we're going to establish ourselves as a nation in agreement that human rights are gonna be figured out, sorted out, and agreed upon. And then we can argue about what property rights are later, once we've established our human rights. So that's why I, I like that clip number three there. All right, number four, clip number four. This one was called The Better, The Better Way. Um, that God, that one just brought me to freaking tears because he was again asserting how by following this nonviolent way and by reminding everybody that resisting the temptation of, of bitterness 
and hatred about your opponent, <clears throat> that will allow this togetherness. Is that the one when he said uh, there's going to be a, uh, it's possible to, to create the symphony of brotherhood? Something like that. The other one was called brotherhood, but this one, he said, we're going to be part of a great new building process to have a, a high, more highly evolved USA. And damn, if, if that guy was pretending he loved the United States of America and all that it's supposed to be, he sure has me fooled because he loved the USA and, and he painted a picture of it, I think as we all thought it was as kids uh, before we realize how 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 much uh, give and take there always is to do, and and he brought it back to that's freaking possible to exist at the higher plane, so that the things we're solving, and this is this is my podcast is about propelling this thing of of joining through your internal development, developing. A society that can work together to solve way bigger problems than surface distractions there's we don't have to worry about like problems to solve let's let's come together with the ridiculous stupid ones so that we can figure out how to solve problems of um, economic balancing, landfills, where we put all trash, you know, recycling, the use of materials, um, getting, getting a society that doesn't use so much electricity, therefore doesn't need so much fossil fuels, getting off of chemical drugs, those types of things, huge, massive, like shifting swings that we could, that we could have together if we could just promote an awareness of the inner self that doesn't fall victim to to the distraction not techniques but um, distractions to which our, our, our amazing capitalist society requires us to use like when we, we want to be good at our job and we work in the in the news it, it's not like a, a technique we're using to ruin the country to highlight the bad stuff and make it seem bigger than it is and, and to highlight the division and make it seem bigger than it is. It's not like a technique of evil. We're just trying to be good at our job. We're trying to make people watch our channel more than the other channel. So we're gonna make the more inciting, the more exciting and therefore inciting of violence or division type of news story that there is. I mean, I've talked about it in other episodes that that's called the, um, I think I made this term up, it's the perceived relevance fallacy. And it's if you have a hundred people behaving in a certain way and two people at, at an event and two people are behaving in a different way, in, in a bad way, then the news is going to show those two people from every angle. And nowadays, we're so smart at it and savvy because we're going to school just for journalism and competing uh, for jobs in journalism. 
uh, with other people who, who went to school. I, had, I got a job on freaking CNN or Fox um, because you know how to make a, uh, a piece. You're going to show those two people who are a tiny, tiny minority of like an event. And I'm specifically thinking of the most recent one I, I, I remember here in the state of Virginia where I am of uh, Charlottesville where there's like like 30 people or less um, storming aka walking around at and mouthing off at at some event and they made everybody watching from coast to coast for 30 to 90 people or something like that um, I'm pretty sure it was more along the lines of 30 or less they made them seem like that was this giant wave that had to be dealt with uh, through their coverage of that. And um, more and more young kids that are learning that the, how that works and that are learning that you can't be swayed by that through mindfulness and through developing yourself, that they're not going to fall victim to that, but... It still works now that if you show that tiny minority of people who are popping off, all of a sudden the coast to coast, they're going to think like, wow, look at this. Look at how many crazy uh, uh, white supremacists there are still. Man, there may be a thousand. That's a pretty small freaking tiny fraction of uh, the United States. And it it's so small that there's probably more dementia dementia of of other specific like really specific there's probably like more people who believe that they're uh, you know a superhero that are locked up in some psychiatric ward over the world than there are people who uh, agree with some of the things that the news if produced in a way that they do they can show us, uh, make it seem very, very relevant and widespread when in, in fact it's not. One of the other clips I have, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, which one was, I just got done talking about the better, the building of a new nation. Um, I think that it's not in the one, I, I didn't get this one, but in, in one of his most famous speeches that I'm probably going to end with. That have a dream speech. Um, I'm not going to play the whole thing. I'm going to play a little bit of the end of it. But he did remind everybody that th these demonstrations that he was asking for, getting, organizing flawlessly all over the place with diehard support, support that understood everything he said that was behind it that said yes that philosophy is perfect and i agree with it and i will do it and i agree with your courage and i want to have that courage too I'm, I'm behind it that type of energy um martin luther king reminded people and i believe the i have a dream speech and, and several others that don't be fooled and think that the, the small number of people who are basically belligerent represent any, any amount of us. It's a very small uh, 
percentage of people who are doing that. And he just, don't be fooled. He, he glossed over it. I've been talking about that, I feel like, for 30 minutes now because it's such a big deal to me what the news uh, can do to people who watch it. I don't watch it anymore because it's, it's been just the same thing except accelerating since I used to watch it uh, a few years back. Uh, but I do not watch it anymore. I read, uh, I read some articles, probably too much, and I read on a given topic many different headlines that sound in different ways to kind of piece things together, and then I, I hear what people say about it. But um, as far as being glued to the news, man, that can suck you in, and that can give you a uh, a lot of heartache, a lot of stress that's uh, it's not genuine and it's, it's stuff that usually makes it feel like it's out of your control and makes you feel like there's no point of controlling anything because everything is so freaking whacked so pull away from it and control what you can control and vote and uh, anyway it's me and my soapbox what was I just talking about? Uh, I think I was saying like uh, Martin Luther King, yada, yada, yada. I support what he stood for. Did I talk about what he said at the Brown, Chap the Brown Chapel? The specifics there. Yes, that's where I got sidetracked. Um, when I said he was far from a theorist. Uh, yeah, he studied philosophy and he wanted to be able to have thought a lot of different philosophies out and be able to talk about it but he was a practitioner an activist a leader through example when he was down in alabama he was saying we're going to stand here and he, he painted the picture of literally what he was looking at there's horses you know how scary a freaking horse is when you're on foot and you're holding hands with somebody and you're like, yeah, I don't have a gun. What I'm do doing is I'm holding this dude's hand and this woman's hand on the other side. And there's like eight guys on giant horses there with hooves clomping on the ground. And those guys have guns. And he mentioned the billy clubs and the tear gas and what might happen to you when a billy club comes upside of your head momentarily. He was talking about freaking momentarily this will be happening right here, right now. Um, in a calm way, I might add. So, man. I want to uh, make everybody who hears this maybe think that they can infuse in themselves uh, a toning down of sorts of the, the hate uh, towards what they disagree with. And I think anybody who's listening to this has probably been on like maybe both sides of um, like some kind of Man, why is it about like the the president so much about like the the top like the very executive branch like we're like oh man I guess that's the most by far the most visible person but we're we're always like against 
or for the presidential actions. And um, the president we have sitting right now sure draws a lot of people's anger and and he can make you just get sucked into like 45 minutes a day or more of what bad things there are to say about him. And I knew people, there's definitely people in my family, my father, um, just conservative people when Obama was a sitting president they would suck 45 minutes to two hours of their day up every every single day of things that they could share about their their opposition towards what how they felt about that guy and what I want to, to remind us all is that there is a there's a lot of time that we spend doing that that the mindfulness revolution is starting is going to make kids not be victim to that anymore because they they're starting to study more and more what inside of your brain where there's something when you're doing that there's something that's not working on yourself there's something that's focused externally and there's a chemical that's released that is satisfying a, per, a certain part of a of your day, of your psyche, that's not being addressed by you. And they're to address yourself, it takes you away from the things, one, you can't control, and the two, two, the things that make your brain feel hot with chemical hatred, um, exterior level. And it, it makes you seek uh, uh, more peace in what you can do and what you can share that actually makes if you do want a world that is more gentle in the life of this world and less savage through our divine human ability to think and, and choose our actions if you do want that for yourself and for your fellow brothers and sisters it makes you think about how to get that internally and not focus on the external. Mindfulness revolution, you and me, we, we may not realize it as much as some of the younger kids are, but um, there's some pretty cool movements happening worldwide where they're not going to be suckers for some of these things that, that we're allowing ourselves to be distracted by. And I encourage you and me to get on that uh, sooner than later because it's all smiles and uh, and the possibilities are like Martin Luther King was saying like dude this this one dude who was oppressed and the the royal family prime minister of India and the royal family um, of Britain somehow were doing a press conference where there's dancing and stuff like that and it was pretty much the height of, uh, of achievement for the nonviolent opposition and the solidarity and the love that Martin Luther King was talking about um, sure this is sure is rambling but you guys have uh, been good listening so far if you're still listening it, it's been emotional for me for the last few days trying to put these together and I'm gonna 
talk about should I talk about race a little bit? I should at least state my my statement on racism, and that's that I I don't like racism. And I think it can go the way of uh, of diseases that we no longer have, that because they're uh, they've been thought out, polio, or any of those other diseases that we don't have anymore because they've been thought through. Chickenpox. Did you realize that like anybody over I think 32 or 33 years old probably we used to have to get chickenpox in order to like overcome it. They don't get it anymore. They they inoculate for it in, a, in like a safe shot that's standard now that like kids don't get chickenpox anymore. So in just that same way I know that as much as we're learning about the brain and we will not hold accountable this thing that it, it kind of shows itself as racism if we don't know enough about it. But we're going to start learning more about it and um, realizing that it's another instinct of um, our evolutionary minds that groups things together and actually can be dealt with scientifically. When we do that en masse as a people more and more, which we're, I think we're going to be really close to. We don't realize how close we are to that. We're going to start realizing and highlighting a bigger problem to address and that's the issue of poverty. And we're going to start being able to say, wow, there's a poverty issue um, to address. Yeah. So it's amazing what what's all been done from, man, from the time of, just to think of how much equality of the law there is now. Equality of the law. Now there's not a quality of practice and of business and that has to do with historic and systemic poverty. Let's we'll get into that. And and ideally we'll just have less and less of our time focused on like these surface trivial distractions like uh, what's going on between black people and white people and we will realize that all right very serious and extremely uh, easy to to understand poverty problem there is uh, one race of people that was started arriving as freaking property 275 years ago only as property and um, that that people has uh, nothing in common historically with the group of people that had people coming over with family seals that can be traced back like 400 
600 years ago. I had a boss that, um, man, this guy was, he was amusing. What a good boss, a great businessman. But what he liked to do in his free time was like go to Sweden where his family came from and like trace back their history to like 500 years ago and see the crest, the family like crest um, that he could trace back and be like, yeah, we've, we've been well off since, uh, you know, before the United States was even like freaking discovered or something. Um, and then my family used it as a, a sheer business uh, endeavor. And so obviously that guy's family is well off and he was my boss. He was, uh, his job was basically just to manage what he inherited, the assets that he inherited in his family that had had money since before they arrived in the U.S. So there's one of uh, the big prevailing races, I just hate that term, races, so much, but the one big prevailing race of uh, us Anglo-Saxons, or whatever you want to call us, I don't know what the hell the term is, that some of us had uh, family lines that set up um, you know family comforts or family will take care of you if if you can't make it then your your family's got your back well going back four or five hundred years there are no family crests of people that were brought over as with like on purpose with nothing so that they could be very similar to animals because nothing and then therefore made property. And when you realize the large scale of that, the large scale, and uh, you can put that on a map and count out impoverished neighborhoods, more the the less money your family had, less money you're, like, if you have a lot of families that don't have any money, you have a lot of families that couldn't bail their kids out when they got in trouble, um, take care of them. And that's, that's just math. Um, we gotta address that, how to enlighten, how to enlighten and educate, um, the youth more from areas that are historically like just hand-me-down poverty not hand-me-down wealth hand-me-down freaking poverty and that goes along with I don't want to be too depressing about that because I'm also absolutely astounded and amazed um, that given that crazy dichotomy of history how much togetherness and how much success is found all throughout everybody black brown yellow white purple green blue throughout this country is and that's the spirit that's that's the heart of humankind you know that's the heart of humankind that makes that possible how awesome and together and how many possibilities there truly are 
but I really think that once we stop thinking that there's like uh, this false um, dichotomy of any races, we're just going to realize the mathematics of uh, historical poverty that there are. And we're going to hopefully start to just have some more compassion and address that uh, there are countless, countless neighborhoods, countless, countless populations that we need to pour our resources and our our brain power into how to increase the um, the learning potential and from pre-k all the way up to just build stronger smarter families throughout the poor folks because you can make it from being poor you can there's a lot of people that have done it but it's it's not as easy in it and if you have 1,000 uh, well-off people and if you slip through the cracks they're way more likely to be picked up and be okay and not end up in prisons if you have 1,000 poor people and you got a lot more likely to be to struggle with um, how to make it obviously man I encourage you to one of the guests that I had on a podcast last year his name is Paul Paul Rucker I encourage you to go on to if you can get through them man there's some hard videos to watch but if you can get through some of his art installations he's got this graphic that shows the, the like it shows a map of the United States and then prisons being built as like these little light bulbs on the on the map it's an amazing work of um, graphic uh, a graphic illustration and it's like staggering where this freaking prisons are and how many of them there got to be like especially after like 1991 in the late 80s and stuff like that BAM it, it's crazy these prisons anyway you need to think about that. We need to put our put our think tanks on that, and we don't need to put our think tanks on how to make like better, awesome video games with um, uh, what is it called? Virtual, virtual reality. Um, yeah, just to bring more people together, so we can really tackle problems together. Man, let's tackle a big problem get together and then tackle those other problems once we're together that's my my big thing in in this podcast I don't know how I got to that but I guess maybe it's on my mind now I have two more clips for you from Martin Luther King and this one is uh, it's the day after he died and in every clip of him speaking, uh, there was like, I don't know, you tell me if you feel it, but there was like this hope and this like love and this, I guess, a vision, a, uh, a balanced, 
like a path like it was like climb on board man I got you it was just like this like we knew where we were going and and how much he just hammered home that the way is non-violence and again a clip that I didn't I don't think I got but there's an interview he gave where somebody said hey if so, such and so and so happens like if they pass this this bill in this state or that state or can you tone it down are we gonna have less uh, demonstrations and Martin Luther King said uh, you know what I like because he was in control of it he said we may have less demonstrations in that one city but the demonstrations are going to continue until like such and such other thing happens in this other city very calmly like the guy asked him will you stop these peaceful demonstrations for a while and he told them the conditions under which he would as, as if it were as easy as him like holding his hand up and saying stop or go and that's how cool and peaceful they were. They were simply uh, like, a, like a nuisance. Like the city would have to deal with it. Nobody was getting hurt. I mean, it, unless one of the police officers beat the hell out of one of the peacefully hand-holding demonstrators. Um, but MLK seemed like he there were su there was such a force of people doing that work with him, agreeing in a unified way. Uh, it came across in this one clip. I, I wish I had it. I, I couldn't find it. I think right before I, came, I started developing this. But um, so that calmness, that unified front, that agreeing of nonviolence. And then I'm going to play for you this clip the day after he was assassinated. And see if you could tell the chilling loss that is, that you can tell. People are, this, this was in New York. Uh, in Central Park and I guess I mean it was it just seemed like a bunch of people had no clue what to do so they just gathered there that's what it seems like if you listen to some of the audio of this and there's a bullhorn or a you know a megaphone and they were kind of just people were letting anybody grab it and a lot of people were there that were they have um, some writers some musicians playing songs but they would also just let anybody grab it I mean And, and there were pe people would sing and they were singing morning songs and trying to get together but there was he, he said no non-violence 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 he gets killed and all of a sudden people are like what do we do now let's get crazy um, and there was some balance to that some people at this event were we're also saying like remember what he said remember what he said but 
it just gave without his voice to say what was right nobody had a big enough like nobody had big enough courage a big enough stature that it was almost like people weren't afraid to be on the crazy flip side of that and including like th this clip is going to have start off with a guy who is on the, the crazy end of that who it reminds me of like a guy that would be shown on today's type of news saying all right let's get violent let's get crazy now um and martin luther king literally two days prior the day before his death he said i'm not afraid of dying we know where we're going i've told you basically what we're how that our lives are in jeopardy when we do this but this is the way and then he's dead and then so people are like ah let's let's make up our own new chaotic crazy way um but there were people man this so it's going to start off with one guy saying let's get violent now and and people disagree with that and just see if you can tell the difference of the vibe uh, with the guy's voice just not being present on earth anymore. So I, I guess it's it's up to us to really do what we can to not just be like Christmas Day uh, it goes away the day after Christmas, not Christmas anymore. Day after Martin Luther King Day. It's not Martin Luther King. Let's just forget it. Remember, dude, there are heroes like Gandhi, Jesus, Martin Luther King. Remember, those are like the biggest deals we have to take all, all throughout time. And, and um, all right, well, just listen. Like, just imagine the clips I've, I've been playing you about peace and, and everything and, and listen to this. But also, listen to the people that are terrified that it is going to careen off the tracks and go away from what MLK was stating, all right? Saying, get in the snowing. It's not violence, just die. We gotta have violence out here. That's right. You, you white people out here, vindicate yourself. I'm tired of this now. We black people have to have a stand. We gotta stand. You hear that? I'm from behind, and I know. I'm from Bethlehem Stuyvesant. No, you can't. I ain't finished. Black power. Black power. statement to the white people in this audience right now. First of all, I think that we're, we're just a minute. We're not going to get this place just one second. All right, first, I think that the people who came here to mourn and to mourn only should stay here, but there are people who came here for another reason, and I think they should go somewhere else. Chaos. Chaos. One day later. I'm going to end um, by saying thank you. God bless. 
namaste and just a little bit of the the speech that we all just can't you know hear too much and um, just you know I don't know what else to say just there's not a whole lot of people that come by like this so man thank God we got the day off of work but when we're talking about heroes uh, and when we're talking about courage just let's not forget it this will be the day this will be the day when all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning my country tears of thee sweet land of liberty of thee I sing land where my fathers died land of the pilgrims cry from every mountainside let freedom ring and if America is to be a great nation this must become true so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the crevaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Thank you so much for listening to the Joyful Podcast. And God bless. Namaste. Learn how to meditate. Learn how to do something that helps you internally. Learn how to do anything new. Well, thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Love you all.